Good morning, church. Hope you're all doing well. If you have a Bible, would you please open it with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. We're going to be picking up this morning uh, where we left off a couple weeks ago. We had about a two-week detour. We skipped ahead in the book of Matthew, um, covering Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but we're going back to where we were in Matthew 13. Like Jacob said, my name is Josh. I serve on staff here. Uh, If you don't know who I am, um, if you're new here. As we get started, we'll be picking up Matthew 13, verse 24. It says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat that went and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the reeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, at the harvest time, and I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman that took and hid three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. So where we sit currently, kind of to catch us back up and set the context of where we've been speaking through, we have to do some work. Jesus is currently now speaking in what we call parables. Parables are a story that are used to illustrate a truth or a concept. Para meaning beside, to literally come behind to give us meaning. So, so why did Jesus use stories? In this section, right where we sit, he's told a lot of little stories So stories can be this powerful way to kind of provoke thought and capture your imagination. 
Just think of the power stories have. It's, it's throughout all our culture, throughout all our society, books, movies, legends, history. We all tell these things through story. Even marketing companies leverage the power of story to sell you things. It's so unique to the human race. But these stories are more than just a collection of just mere facts. But, but that's true in everything. Suppose you meet somebody. When you come up, you just don't give information of who you are. My name is Josh. I do this. This is where I live. This is my social security number. Right? We're more than just a collection of facts. But what do you say to a person? Who are you? Where are you from? What is your name? What do you do? Tell me your story. So a story can be this really powerful tool. Now, Jesus, being the masterful teacher, he used the story of parables because they're easily remembered. And they're rich in symbolism. How, how often do you remember a well-told story versus a whole line of scientific facts? Right? We tell them to our kids. Kids love and grasp stories. So parables were a common form of teaching in this time in Judaism. This is nothing unique. But Jesus' use of parables were not just abstract or moral or religious philosophies. But they were specifically to teach us truths about him or his kingdom. So when he's teaching us about him and his kingdom, these stories that point to a deeper, richer truth, they kind of challenge the current assumptions, and they taught, really, what is the kingdom of God really about? We're dealing with a whole crowd that had assumptions that were totally wrong, and he's trying to get us from here to here, saying, hey, this is actually what I am about. This is what God's heart is about. This is what the kingdom of heaven is truly like. And at this particular point in his ministry, Jesus has begun to only speak publicly using parables. So much so, if we back up to where we were about three weeks ago, um, the disciples notice this and they question Jesus. And he says this in verse 10, if you go to Matthew 13, 10, it says, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But indeed, their case is the case of prophecy that Isaiah fulfilled that says this, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So we have this. Matthew is a writer writing to a Jewish audience. So he's going to work prophecy, and this is the events, here's the prophecy that, that was fulfilled. This particular prophecy was written over 700 years before this happened. He's saying, here's the events the way they did. This is why Jesus chose to do what he has done, fulfilling this. But it has this weird idea. Doesn't it kind of sound like Jesus is saying, I'm going to put a story before them, and they won't be able to grasp this and understand, and that's their issue. But I don't think that is what is happening here. But rather, there's two different kinds of audiences. We could tell one truth, and in this room, people will perceive it and hear it in a totally different way. 
I can, I can communicate to you a total absolute truth, but some people might be like, nah, I don't believe it, and begin to reject it and kind of grow deaf to it, even though that has been clearly stated where somebody else might hear it and their mind and their imagination is pricked. They begin to ponder, back, I think I kind of get it. And they begin to engage with it. And some people have understanding, like, I get these principles. I understand. I have this understanding. And it is not to keep people or inhibit them from, them from entering the kingdom of God, but rather two audiences are hearing this. And up to this point, the religious elite have begun to reject Jesus. They begin to see his factual miracles. Instead of saying they don't exist, they begin to say, hey, you are doing these things in the power of Satan himself. So because of the hardness of their heart, he begins to interact with them only in stories, and because of their refusal, refusal to hear the truth, to witness these facts that they're seeing unfold before them, to see the hand of God, they become deaf. They can't hear, they can't receive it for what it is, but certain audiences hear this, and it's life to them, it has meaning. So that is what we're dealing with. And we're told that Jesus says in verse 16, hey, blessed are your eyes where they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and hear what you hear and did not hear. So something special is going on. The people who prophesied about this wanted to actually see what is tangibly before you. You are a blessed people. You don't understand the weight and the gravity of what is happening here. So here we have the kingdom parables. Now, Jesus also used to teach in parables possibly because he would not be directly challenged. When you kind of speak in story form instead of directly saying things as he did before in that constant battle or the constant rub against him, he can now speak in story and the people who don't hear kind of scratch their heads. It's wheat and weeds? What is he even talking about? It allowed him to more freely communicate truths. But kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And this story illustrates to us what the kingdom is really like. He kind of flips the common assumptions on their head. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's not what you think. And so we have to kind of hold that together. What you thought it was, it is not. We have to remember to hold the idea of the language of king and kingdom. That's something we are not familiar with. That there's authority and power and rule physically and tangibly that would be associated with this. God's kingdom in power, God's place, God's people, God's rule. So to set the context, what is happening? We have the people of Israel who had this assumption that the Messiah would show up and he would begin to set up his throne and rule and reign. They had unmet expectations. We assume that the Messiah is this. He'll kick out Rome. He'll set up and set things straight. And this is the way it will be. He will ride in on this white horse. He'll be valiant. He'll be strong. But that's not how the kingdom of heaven showed up. Unmet expectations. So if we stop and we think about it, unmet expectations. Just imagine and ponder how we continually have those on a daily basis. Have you ever experienced? What, what was the emotion that it evoked? Was it disappointment? Was it anger? I expected this one thing, but something else took place. Now, when we're dealing with this at the center of a culture and a religious experience that they thought it would be one way to all of a sudden find out it is not, that'd be a level of disappointment and animosity would begin to build. 
So Jesus, a king who would rule and reign, is not what he showed up doing. He came humbly. So to kind of walk through these parables, what I want to do is we have three of them, and they kind of go out of order. He tells the first one, and then he gives the interpretation at the end, two in the middle. We're going to start with the two in the middle and keep the parable of the weeds and the wheat together to make it make a little more cohesive sense. So the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31 says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the idea, kingdom of heaven is what? It's a small seed. It says it's the smallest of all seeds, but just to put it in perspective, it is really small. Now, if I was to hold up a mustard seed, it'd probably look about like this, about a millimeter in size. Nobody could actually visibly probably see what this is. Now, to us who don't understand agriculture and farming, that might be a little lost, but when you plant a mustard seed, what grows isn't a tree. This isn't what you would expect. It'd be a small bush. This is more so like an herb. But he's saying the kingdom of heaven is this tiny, tiny seed. The only thing impressive about it is how unimpressive this truly is. This tiny seed that when you plant it, it grows into this giant tree that even birds can come and live in. So Jesus, you might look at him and say, do you understand anything about agriculture? But I think Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, not botany. He's not trying to make a point about how plants actually grow, but he's using exaggeration that the mustard seed shouldn't grow that large and the kingdom of God actually grows in unexpected ways. Now, if we kind of lay this out from history and what we already know kind of being on this side of the resurrection, this side of the crucifixion, we know the story. Then the humble beginnings, how did it happen? That this God-man came to earth not, not in fancy ways, but was actually born in a stable. He came in humility, a servant king. He came to serve. And then look at his followers, the people he held closely that were around him to help the kingdom go forth. What were they? Uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, people of no renown, somebody we would look at and probably scoff. This is how God chose to make his kingdom go forth. And then who he hung out with. He's constantly accused of hanging out with the lowlifes, the sinners, the people nobody wanted to associate. And look what it has grown to. Worldwide, it's grown to this great thing, this simple message that started 2,000 years ago has grown. What has stopped it? When we look at our point in our particular moment in history, we can see what this has grown to. And he tells them this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like that of a woman who took and hid three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So he uses this, his stories get shorter and shorter. Here's a one-liner for you. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And when I read this, I kind of get lost on some details because I don't understand baking. I don't understand these words that you see this image of somebody baking these loaves. But when I looked into how much flour they're actually using, it's a lot of flour. This is like three measures is like 50 to 60 pounds of dough. Now, that's enough to feed like an army. Like, what army is, are they beginning to feed with this? This is no small amount. This isn't some home baker at home making a couple of loaves for dinner. 
And it says he took and hid that in this dough. So this word hid uses the Greek word crypto, which is similar to how we get cryptology or encryption. So the kingdom of heaven, it's actually hidden. Something you wouldn't expect, something that isn't obvious. It's subtle. It comes up from the bottom. And that's true when you, we begin to act and interact with faith in the Christian realm, sometimes there's kind of this cryptic thing. I, I don't get this Jesus thing. I kind of get it. It doesn't quite make sense. It's almost like this hidden thing, and these realities are unlocked when we begin to interact in faith. But from the foundation of the world, God had this plan that he hid this, these truths that we did not see coming in ways we did not see happening. So we have leaven. Leaven is... Not the dried leaven that is commonly used or you go to the store. It'd probably be a starter like you'd use in sourdough where you have a dough and it has yeast in it. So yeast is this microscopic thing. Again, not impressive, small, humble beginnings. But what can we learn about yeast that teaches us truth about the kingdom of God? One, yeast works from within. It's not this outward dominating force that actually causes the change. Now, we can look around and see that. That's how the kingdom of God moved forth. It isn't this mighty warrior who showed up and used force to push people out. And, and similar to us, when those who believe, if we have been changed, we have been changed from the inside out. We can stand and say, hey, I used to be this way. I once was this. I once was blind, but now I'm found. I am different. God has taken me. He has changed my heart. Yeast is also slow, and it is subtle in growth. It takes time. It isn't this quick, immediate process. Very slow. Sometimes if you sat there and stared at it, you wouldn't see anything taking place. But from the inside out, it slowly grows. And we forget this. I can be very impatient, and sometimes I, I get hungry. I'm like, I want to make pizza tonight, so I'm going to make dough. And I realize... Let me look up some recipes and realizing how long it takes for yeast to activate to make dough. It says, prep your dough and let it sit for two or three hours. I'm like, but I want to eat in 10 minutes. I want this to be done. And, and we, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works, but literally that it sits and it takes time, unobservable. Another thing is it changes everything that it touches. Effects are total, affects the whole lump. So not just a partial change. Us who have been saved, it's not this partially saving or partially cleaning. God cleanses all of us. When he affects something and his kingdom goes forth, it is in total. It is complete. It will affect everything that it comes in contact with. And in 35, it says this, sorry, 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. These hidden things, these truths that we didn't know, things we didn't understand are all of a sudden becoming manifest and we're getting a glimpse of how it really works. Let's back up to verse 24. The parable, sorry, yep. Yeah parable of the weeds. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while they were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weed among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, 
the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the reeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles and to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we have weeds. You have this man sowing. And this enemy comes, and it says he's sowing good seed. He's not sowing these weeds, but an enemy comes and begins to plant in where he has already planted weeds. Now, most likely in this culture, um, this would have been darnel or false wheat. Now, darnel looks exactly like a wheat plant, especially in its early stages. When they both begin to grow, you cannot tell the difference of them. The only point at which you can actually tell the difference between true weeds or darnel or false wheat is when it begins to bear fruit. It has a whole different root system. The part that is hidden can't be seen. It has a long spread rooting system, this false weed. But from a distance, you would not be able to tell that. And so they don't even notice it until it begins to bear fruit. So in an agricultural society, they understood very well Farming and these things were at the center of how culture, they, they needed it to depend on. So sometimes we, we get the idea, but we kind of lose it. Sometimes I don't, I don't even know what the comparative would be in our culture today, what would make the most sense. But I think these things are kind of transcendent where we get the idea of what is happening here. So the interpretation. In verse 36, says, he left the crowds and went down into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So you see, they go into the house, they separate themselves. Jesus has only given these clear explanations and engaging on this level to give the keys to understand this when they're away, not publicly. And he says, the one who sows a good seed is the son of man. So we have this person, the son of man. Who's he, who's he talking about? It might be a term if you've been around church for any amount of time, but really what does it mean? He doesn't say Messiah, but we use this term, the son of man, which is very interesting. First mention would be in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision and this prophecy of this one who sits and rules with authority and on this judgment throne, and they say this is the son of man. Now, Jesus referred to himself continually as the son of man. Instead of saying, hey, I'm the Messiah or the son of God, he referred to himself frequently as the son of man. Possibly because of the engendered meaning that the term Messiah had in this culture. Remember, we're dealing with false assumptions. They, they would have heard that and immediately put up a false wall. But if he kind of uses these roundabout ways and these terms that actually have depth and meaning, it is an immediate shut off because of what they expected the Messiah to be like. But we have the field. And it says the field is the world, not just the church. But the whole world, we see the whole kingdom of God spreading. And we have the good seed, which is the sons of the kingdom. Those who are followers, those who are believers in Jesus would be the good seed. But we have this other component. We have the weeds, the son of the evil one, sons of the evil ones. Those who do not believe, those who are not 
part of God's kingdom, those who are opposed to God's kingdom. They're at odds with it. And this kind of opens our eyes to these realities that there is this cosmic spiritual warfare going on. Now, I'm sure that today you probably did not enter this room today wondering, hey, is there larger realities in the spiritual realm happening? But as we begin to read God's word, it kind of changes our perspective on that. There is a reality that we do not see, these unseen realms. You actually have an enemy. If you are a believer in Jesus, there's somebody who stands opposed to you. And that's a reminder. There is an enemy. Two kingdoms literally at odds. Not just good versus evil, but rather a spiritual battle raging. True believers, counterfeit believers. These are not counter opposites where you have, this is identifiably good and this is obviously evil. But we have good and evil where the evil actually begins to try to morph to look as close as it can to good where it is very hard to tell what is going on. So, so what are weeds? Now you get this idea in this picture that Jesus might be sitting there looking out at the crowd, looking out at the Pharisees and saying, them assuming to be the religious elites that they are, that we are the true sons of Abraham. We are part of God's kingdom. But we know this extends longer than just that immediate context. We're talking about the end of the age, not just what who is immediately before them. But in the, midst of the, in the midst of us, there are people who look to be genuine but are not. And what's the distinguishing factor? The fruit. When they begin to bear fruit, how do you know? Now, this is nothing new. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters earlier, Jesus tells us this very clearly. It says this in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's kind of a sobering statement. I didn't know you. It was a game to you. But beware. Know that this will be. We're guaranteed that this will be. Now, this is a strategy of the enemy. It's not an all-out frontal attack. It's not a very obvious, full-force attack, but rather it's more subtle, and it is much more dangerous. Using counterfeit, it's hard to spot. There's subtleties to that. Now, if we look in our culture, it's very easy to spot the blatant wrong in the world, is it not? In our culture, in church, in politics, amongst your families, amongst your friends, do we not recognize wrong and notice it? very obviously, but this is something that is much more subtle. Now, there may be different kinds of counterfeits. It doesn't clearly give us what that means, what it looked like. When we read the whole of Scripture, we get the idea that some people are in it for fame, for prominence, for platform, for money. Some people maybe just attend church because it's a good thing to do. I like the teachings of Jesus. He's a moral person but have not had a change on the inside of their heart. We love what he says and are close enough, but have never had any regenerating thing take place on the inside. Never had their sins washed away, but instead just kind of go along with the flow. 
There could be many reasons. But it's a warning for us. Now, if we notice the course of action, what, what happens? It says, what should we do? Should we rip them up? It says, no, let them grow together, lest in ripping out the weeds we uproot the wheat. Wait, what? Don't do anything? Is that, is that our instinct? Aren't we to expose counterfeits? Shouldn't we be starting some parachurch milit- ministry that kind of exposes this? Isn't that our duty? Now, these are things to wrestle with for sure. Because when we take the whole of Scripture, the honest truth is truth matters. It matters a great deal. It just does. But in this context, maybe something else is being communicated. We see lots of New Testament writings speaking against false teachers, warning against them, encouraging true believers to go deeper and grow deeper roots in God's word to understand his truth. Even Jesus himself used harsh language when speaking to the Pharisees and the religious, religious elite. You whitewash tombstones. On the outside, you look really great, but on the inside, it's death. But I think what we're dealing with here is something that does, deals more with judgment and justice than it actually does with apologetic and defending truth. So we know this, that at the end of time, this will happen. Judgment is future. We know judgment will happen, but in context, remember, unmet expectations. Jews assumed the Messiah would show up on the scene and execute immediate judgment, that these things would be final and immediate, but they weren't. This was not God's plan. And that's good news for us. It really is. I'm going to tell you today, that, that is something that we should rejoice in. And why is that? Well, God's grace, God's patience. He's giving us time to allow us to turn to repent. So who in this room would actually not be affected if that judgment took place 2,000 years ago? Not a single person. All of us, because of God's long-suffering and patience, has allowed us to sit, allowed us to receive the free gift of salvation, allowed us to partake in his grace. He's allowed that for me to an event that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe in Israel. This event affects my life today. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are a beneficiary of this, something that started so long ago, something that had small and humble beginnings, that started in a way that nobody expected. And even now, God's patience and his gift of salvation is still freely extended to those who would take and partake of that. But let's not mistake his patience for also our approval of, to sin. Just because God's long-suffering and patient doesn't mean we live in sin. We do not mistake that. But we can be sure of this. Judgment is coming. Justice will be done. And these are harsh words. These are, these are heavy things to kind of wrestle with. One day, Jesus says he will separate those that are truly his and separate those who are not his. Parables begin to further delineate the difference between people who belong to him and people who do not. But who does this? Some, some will be separated to glory and some to eternal punishment. But who does this? The king does this. It's not our job to execute final judgment, is it? 
So we need to be aware of what judgment we're executing, lest we begin to rip up the good seeds around us. Now, that's a possibility. Like, we have platforms, the way we behave, the way we speak. We have this tool called social media where it's really easy to get up there and rant and rave. But let me ask you this. In all wisdom, not to say what you're saying is right or wrong, but are you doing it in a way that's honoring to God's kingdom or are you defaming his name? Now, that's a hard statement, but maybe that needs to be said. The way we actually filter through it as citizens of his kingdom, maybe we need to begin to act like that. Or are we living in ways that actually do further damage? Some people in this room maybe have had associations with people who professed to be followers of Jesus, but have seen something that is altogether corrupt or hurtful. Now that is not an excuse to ignore truth, but it is a reality that we have to be aware of. See, we read this and we're guaranteed this one thing. There's always going to be false teachers among us, church. Always. When, when is it dealt with? At the end of the age, right? This is something we can guarantee that there will always be counterfeits. Something that looks real, acts like it, but is not. Until Jesus returns and sets it straight. Don't be discouraged. I would actually encourage you with this God's kingdom still is moving forward. These little things, insignificant things that were planted and grow, these giant trees, the leaven, these stories, be encouraged. What can stop God's kingdom from moving forth? Despite the enemy's best attempts, the best counterfeits, corruption that exists from within, God's kingdom is still present. God is still active, he's still moving. Not even the gates of hell can prevail against it, and we're guaranteed that. So that should cause us to rejoice. If anything, I'd encourage you, if you are recipients of God's grace, God's love, may your hearts and minds be enlarged today. Something seemingly insignificant that was hidden, that's kind of cryptic, we didn't understand it, but what a wonderful plan that is. See, we've been drawn into God's larger story, and just as he uses stories to convey truths, this book we hold here, 66 individual books put together, but it's one continuous story. See, it speaks of God created. He made things. He made things right, and it was good, but mankind rebelled, and sin entered the world, and the earth broke, and things went wrong. The relationship between God and man was fractured. Even creation suffered the results of this. But God had this plan. He would take it upon himself to deal with this. God's plan of redemption, the story of redemption. That he would rescue a world full of sinners, people unworthy. He would send his only son to take the punishment that people, that you and I deserved. To live a life that I could not live and to pay a debt that none of us could ever pay. And to show that God had approved on the third day, what did we celebrate last week? That he rose from the dead. Not even death could hold him and that's part of the story. And now currently he sits in heaven making intercession for those who believe. And that is a glorious thing. 
And then we have this idea of further restoration. When Jesus comes and sets things right and sets up justice, there will be a restoration. God will make all things new. And that is a story that we are caught up in. Something that started small and obscure 2,000 years ago, even before that. But the pinnacle did. As we begin to wrap up, I just want to challenge you guys. The worship band wants to come back up. I don't know where you're at. If you are a believer, I'd say be encouraged. What what do you do now? I think we begin to count our blessings and realize the significance of God's plan and how we're caught up in it. May that fill your heart with joy. May that lead to to an act of praise, an act of worship, where we sit. Maybe you've learned something new about God's kingdom. Maybe you've never been a part of God's kingdom. Maybe this message today, you're like, I kind of get this Jesus thing, but I'm not sure. And I'd encourage you, in a simple act of faith, begin to reach out. If God's real, ask him. Make himself known to you. He will. It's a powerful thing that we've been given forgiveness of sins, something that we don't even have to earn just by calling on his name, by believing in him and trusting in him. He promises to save us, and that, that's good news, church. That's something that we, we, we don't lose, we don't throw away. And then, then there's some scary things. Maybe when I look out at the room, and I, I take this serious, there's some people in here that might be weeds sitting here next to us. The good news is God's patience and his grace and his love are still extended. There is still time to turn. Do not harden your heart. God has pricked your heart. I encourage you guys to interact with that. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. Now, as a church, I think it's very important. When we study God's word, we want to treat it as God's word speaks and we respond. This is not just something to hear and be like, oh, these are great stories and then go about your day. But wherever you're at, what is the appropriate response? Is it praise and adoration? Maybe it's interacting with the salvation that's been offered to you. So as we sing, as we pray, allow these truths that we sing to work something deeper. Ask God to make alive just the radicalness of this message in his kingdom that has been given to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that your plan and your story has even reached us and that your love reaches in places that no one else could. There's no one out of reach of your love and your salvation and your forgiveness. Things that started in unseemly ways you have done and made wonderful and we are a part of that. We say thank you, God. Teach us what it is to truly worship you, to be a people of gratitude. God, in areas of our hearts are our lives where we are sitting on the throne and trying to rule. Help us to step off and allow you to rule and reign. God, we love you. Comfort these people. Speak to it. Holy Spirit, we know that the same message can be received many different ways and trust in your power and your spirit to just make those truths evident. In Jesus' name we pray.